0: It is totally cool that you're letting me fill in. Uh, I was afraid that when you heard Greg wasn't going to be here tonight that you would like to take an extra night of spring break and I'd be in an empty room. But thank you for showing up, and uh, hopefully we'll have a whole bunch of fun together. Uh, You're going to have to help me because I'm not Greg, and so I'm going to need a little bit of help from you. And first off is I love questions. So if we're going along and you've got a question, ask it. Just put your hand up. The runners will come to you, they'll hand you the mic, ask the question. And don't feel like it's a stupid question. If it's stupid, I'll tell you it's stupid. No, if it's, (laughs) chances are there's 10 other people wondering the same thing that you're wondering. So feel free to ask the question. And if you ask one that's too long, then I'll probably just say, hey, you know what? Let's talk about it afterwards and I'll stay afterwards and we'll just process that question together. The other part is, if I fall asleep... Just let the old guy sleep. That's the end of the Bible study. You can leave. I'm I'm about 24 hours back from Israel right now, and uh, I was just there. We were filming some stuff for the Christmas Eve service, and we're super excited. I think this may be one of the most exciting Christmas Eve services that we've ever done, and we did a whole bunch of filming on location in Israel to do that and just had an amazing, amazing time. I I say to people, going to Israel takes the New Testament from black and white to color. Because you go and you stand places where Jesus stood and you see things that Jesus saw and experienced. And it's just an amazing, amazing thing. And right now, we're talking very seriously about putting a trip together to go to Israel as a church. Probably, yeah, what we're thinking right now, I can't can't put it in ink yet, but what we're thinking right now is a year from January. And uh, the reason we're thinking about putting it out that far, January is the low time there, so we get the best prices by going in January. The weather is actually amazing there in January. Um, And then the other part is it gives you and I some time to save up our nickels and dimes. Because, you know, by the time you do airfare and then you do your hotels, it's not a cheap trip. So, but anyways, if you're intrigued about that, interested at all, you might just want to kind of circle that on your calendar, say, hey, I think a year from January, we're probably heading to Israel, and uh, I, I just think it has the potential to be an amazing, super fun, once-in-a-lifetime kind of a trip together, so you can think about that. All right, we are going into the book of Acts. I think I was told that we're in chapter four. Does that sound right? Yes? yes? Okay. All right, so let, here's what let's do. Let's pray, because I'm going to need it, and, uh, and then we'll get started. Hey, dearest Heavenly Father, we just come before you, and here's what we ask. We ask that you would honor that we took a night specifically to come and learn your Word. So God, would you you at least give us a nugget? Would you do something with what we've learned tonight, that you would make our lives look just a little bit more like Jesus uh, when we're done? God, we ask you this in Jesus' precious name, amen. All right, anybody here bold enough to be a reader? So you, you would read the pass you'd read through the scripture for me, and then I could like rudely stop you and then start, anyone here willing to be a reader? Sort of, maybe? No? All right, thanks a lot. Okay, you guys are being so helpful. Okay. Did we have one? Okay. What version of the Bible do you have? New Living Translation. No, it won't work. Never mind. No, I just, I don't, I don't know that one. It'll break me out. Okay. Anybody got an NIV? All right, well, is someone with an NIV willing to read? Terrence is running to the back of the room. We got five volunteers up here. We gave you a vest. What do you want? Right there. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to say go, and then you're going to read, and then when you get to the point where uh, you've read enough, I'm going to say stop. Very rudely, and then you're going to stop, and then we're going to talk, okay? And Terrence, your other microphone's right here, right? Okay, all right, all right, so here we go. It's Acts chapter 4, um, we're going to start in verse 13. Now, if you were here last time, it's, the story is about when uh, Peter is before the Sanhedrin, and they're giving him a hard time about a man that he healed, and uh, they're, they, they're kind of confused, they're kind of angry with him, because so many people have seen this miracle, and now they're reconsidering their stance on Christ. So, what is the Sanhedrin? Who knows that? What is the Sanhedrin? Okay. Go. Right? There's, there's an optometrist, just like a block. No, okay. Uh, The Sanhedrin was uh, the group of of priests and the Pharisees. When they met, that's what it was called, the Sanhedrin. It was the council of the Pharisees. Okay. So it is a council, and often it was made up of a lot of Pharisees. You've actually got two distinct groups of Jews, kind of like Republicans and Democrats. Uh, You've got the Pharisees, and what's the other group? Anybody know? Sadducees. The, which, which of the two groups tended to be the more conservative of the two? Pharisees. Pharisees, Pharisees were ones that held tr- strictly to Scripture. They were very, very strict about keeping all of the laws and all of the ordinances. And guys, just to hear this, we get this thing really confused because we live in the 21st century and we've seen how the Pharisees responded to Jesus and we go, oh, no, 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 Pharisee is another word for hypocrite. But the reality is, guys, Pharisee, was a word for the most conservative, most devout followers of Judaism at the time. These guys followed the law, and they we're talking several thousand laws that they were required to follow, to the letter. And they were devout. The Sadducees on the other side tended to be uh, a much more culturally uh, affected group of people. They were, they were much more into kind of what was going on in the lifestyle. Uh, they were not adherers strictly to the word of God uh, they did not believe in the resurrection. They were a much more liberal group within Judaism, okay? So the Sanhedrin would have been made up of Pharisees. Probably at this time, the majority of the Sanhedrin would have been Pharisees, but there were also Sadducees that would have sat on the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is like a Jewish court that primarily dealt with spiritual matters. Now, this is a big deal because unlike today in secular America, you got to remember that in Israel... Religion trumped politics. So if you were a Pharisee sitting on the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling group of people over religious matters, you technically, as far as Jews were concerned, held more power than the politicians did because you could tell the politicians how they were supposed to act and behave. Every single city had a Sanhedrin, okay? There was one high Sanhedrin, which would be sort of like the Supreme Court today. It's interesting, and here's why I give you all this. At some point, Paul is going to say, I was a member of the Sanhedrin. And so the question comes, was he a member of one of the city Sanhedrins, or was he a member of the High Sanhedrin? I lean toward the side that says, because he says, I was a member not of a Sanhedrin, but I was a member of the Sanhedrin. That Paul, before he converts to Jesus, is so astute, he's so recognized for his theology and his understanding of Scripture, I think he was part of the Sanhedrin, the supreme Sanhedrin over all the rest. Okay? So it's just food for thought. All right. So here we go. We're going to start. Are you ready? Did I give you enough time to find it? Okay. All right. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 13. Read till I interrupt.
1: When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus.
0: Okay, stop. All right. You did good. Thank you. All right. So they're in front of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's perplexed right now. What are we going to do? Because we thought we had finished this thing when we got rid of Jesus, but now his disciples are going around teaching what he taught. And if that weren't bad enough, they're actually doing miracles. So the people are getting swept away. The people are listening to what they say. And so now they're trying to deal with Peter and with John. Now, the interesting thing in the passage is it says that as they begin to talk to him, they realize that Peter and John were unlearned men. Now, here's probably what's going on there. Where did Peter live? Anybody know before Jesus called him? Galilee. Galilee. Okay, so here's what you need to know. Galilee is the agrarian part of Israel. It's actually in the northern part of Israel, but it's where all the farms are. And so chances are that Peter has an accent. Remember, remember when Peter is sitting outside of the trial of Jesus. Remember, he's sitting in the courtyard, and the little girl comes walking up to him and says, hey, you're one of his disciples, aren't you? And Peter says, no, I'm not one of his disciples. And the little girl goes, no, 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 no. You're Galilean. You've got to be one of his disciples. How did she know that? His accent. Ever visited the South? How long does it take for you to realize someone's from Alabama? Okay? Same deal. When you hear Peter, you know he's from Galilee. You can tell by his accent. You can tell he's a farm boy. That's what the passage is saying. It was really easy to tell. This guy was fresh out of the fields. Okay? And now they're there and they're, they're questioning Peter, they're questioning John. Here's the interesting thing in the passage it says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished. What are they astonished at? Look at the passage. They were they didn't go to all the all, they didn't go through all the schooling that they had gone through but they were still preaching the, they, were, they were preaching the with, with the boldness that they that they had but they didn't go through all the schooling that they, they didn't had. go through schooling they're preaching okay how do you think they're preaching because these guys were astonished at their preaching Through the power of the Holy Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit I'm there with you I'm tracking or, that what is it that's impressing these guys because they were they were preaching uh about what what about that that they had uh, cru- crucified jesus christ okay they were they were basically saying I, I think we're really i think we're really close what about their knowledge do you think has sounded them yep was it that jesus would pick just ordinary plain men and he wouldn't necessarily pick the most schooled academic men? I don't, I, I think that's a good thought, and it's, it's true, but I don't think that's what astonishes them.
1: They quoted Psalms.
0: Okay. It was 118.3, and they threw that basically at the Sanhedrin. Okay. So here's people who are from Galilee. They have no credentials, and they're telling the Sanhedrin with courage you're
1: wrong. You killed the Messiah.
0: Okay, I, I, we're we're really close. <laughs> Don't you like it when someone fishes for an answer that's not obvious? I hate that. It ought to be just every answer is Jesus. Jesus is the right answer for every question the guy asked. Just be better in church. We did that. All right. So let, let let me let me back it up. Let me see if I can get us a little closer. And, and you know maybe I'm maybe I'm looking for too, too much. Here's unlearned men. They are sitting in front of the Sanhedrin, who are the most educated men, and they're being questioned and grilled by these men. And something about their behavior astounds them. Okay, let's go, let me read it. Let's read it again. All right, let's read it again. Here we go. Let's go back. When they saw the courage of Peter, and they, and they did see the courage, okay, they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been what? With Jesus. That's what they're saying. They're saying, dude, these guys have been with Jesus. now, Here's the harder question, maybe. How, what was it about how these guys are behaving? What do you think tipped them off? What do you think it was that led these Pharisees who absolutely hate Jesus, who absolutely don't stand for anything these guys stand for, what do you think it is that tipped these guys off? That these men, these ordinary men, had been with Jesus because that's what astounds them right it astounds them because they they're firing at these guys these guys are responding back and by the way that they're responding there's something about these guys response that tells these pharisees these guys have been with Jesus because because you ready because nobody but Jesus behaves the way these guys are behaving these guys have been with Jesus okay so what's our best guess what do you think tipped them off knowledge of the scripture okay knowledge of the scripture I'm going to put confidence with authority if that's okay. So we got go, okay. Uh, like when the Pharisees would try to trick Jesus and ask him all these questions, Jesus would always answer the question in a way that, that, that they were never expecting. They, He would just always go around their question and totally dismantle the question as it was, so that's yeah. probably how they knew. Yeah, okay, so I, I think you're right when you guys hit the knowledge, and I'm okay with authority and comments, but I think the knowledge of Scripture is dead on. Remember remember when the Pharisees and the Sadducees kept trying to grill Jesus with sneaky questions and trip Him up? Remember that? So they, they sent a man to Him one day and said, hey, wait, 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 Jesus, uh, we got a question for you from Scripture. Uh, What if a man dies and leaves his wife a widow? Scripture says that his brother is then supposed to marry her and raise up a child to him. This is Old Testament. But what if that brother dies? And so the next brother marries her. And then the next brother marries her. And then the next brother marries her. And what if there were seven brothers? When she gets to heaven, whose wife will she be? Remember the question? And Jesus says, the only reason you ask that question is because you don't understand the scriptures. Because in heaven, we will neither marry nor be given in marriage. We'll be like the angels. Remember, they come to Jesus another time, and they say to him, hey, uh, should we be paying taxes? And at this point, they feel like they've got Jesus. They've got him over a barrel because the political culture of the day, if you were a Jew, was we hate the Romans So why are we paying taxes to the Romans? Because the truth is, they're our oppressors. And then stop and think about it. All they're doing with our money is they're going out and having orgies and doing all sorts of stuff. So probably as a good Jew, I shouldn't be giving them money so they can go do all of their decadent things. So there was a big groundswell within Judaism to say, hey, we shouldn't be paying taxes to these guys. So they go, oh, well, we got Jesus over the barrel because Jesus talks all the time about obeying people that are in authority over you. So... If he says, well, don't pay it, then we'd say, see, you're a hypocrite. You denied your own words. But if he says, pay it, all the people will turn their backs on him because nobody wants to pay taxes. And do you remember what Jesus responded? He said, bring me a coin. And then he says, whose pictures on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus knew the Scriptures front and back. I think it's one of the things that happens in this moment. These unlearned fishermen stand in front of the most learned men of Israel and are able to defend their faith and give scriptural, biblical answers for the hope that's in their lives. And these men go, wow. The last guy we heard talk that way was named Jesus. What else do you think? What else do you think clued him in? And I'm I'm, going to admit, I'm guessing here but I think i got pretty good guesses. I think it's the interpretation of the Scripture and that they spoke with authority. Okay, and I'm, I'm good. I, I think we're here with both those. I, I'll put both those in, knowledge of Scripture, interpretation of Scripture, the authority and the confidence in what they knew and believed. All right, let, me, let me ask it this way. When Jesus was in debate with the Pharisees, how do you think he would have treated them during the debate? In the midst of just, you know, knowing they were trying to trick him and knowing they were being ornery and knowing that they were just being jerks about the whole... How do you think Jesus treated them during the debate? Huh? Respect and love. Respect and love. So now the disciples stand before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's trying to find a way to accuse him and probably throw him in jail. And what's your best guess? about how Peter and John respond to the Sanhedrin. You know what my guess is? I'm guessing. I I admit I'm guessing. But I'm guessing they behaved like Jesus. I'm guessing they responded in that moment with respect and love. And the reason I'm guessing that is because these men, who were 100% against them, 100% determined to find them guilty, by the time they got done questioning them, simply said, wow, These guys, these guys have been with Jesus because nobody else behaves like that. Which then offers a question. When's the last time somebody encountering you walked away from the encounter and said, wow, I'll bet you that person is a Christ follower? Because they saw so much scripture because of how well you handled the word of God, and because of how you behaved in the midst of conflict, that they were astounded and said, man, the only answer is that person knows Jesus. And guys, I'm just going to say, you realize that the moments when this comes to the forefront, it's not when life is going good. Anybody can act like a Christian when life's going good. Heathens can act like a Christian when life is going good. It's what you do when your enemies circle you. It's what you do in the worst moment of life. How do you behave then? Do you run in panic and fear because everything's not turning out the way you want it? Do you start cursing people because they're not being fair to you or being just in your life? Or do you behave so much like Jesus that your enemies have to say, wow. It's interesting. We were uh, we were leaving Tel Aviv. We we're getting ready to get on the airplane, and uh, part of the camera crew, as we were getting ready to head out, um, they asked you a bunch of questions because they're pretty worried about security in Israel in case you haven't figured that out. And, uh, so they asked one of the camera guys, and we'd already we'd already told this. Look, look, you know, just tell them we were here shooting, you know, a film. It's for our church at uh, Christmas time, and if they ask you what's in the boxes, tell them it's camera gear okay, for us to do that, and all of which was absolutely accurate and true, so we get up there, and we start to check out, and they ask this one guy, well, here's the deal, one of the camera guys brought along a helicopter that shoots camera stuff, so it's really cool, we've got these things, look like we had a big helicopter in Israel, <whistles> but it wasn't, it was a little helicopter, <whistles> you know, out there, so he says to the lady, well, you know, I got camera gear in a helicopter, to which she... So now they they take us all out of line and they put us in front of all these people and they start asking us like hundred thousand million questions about the helicopter and why were you here and what's the church about all this stuff. So we get done and we're asking each other, you know, what did they ask you or the questions? And one of the guys that was with us, one of the camera guys, said, "Man, they they just they wanted to know like all of our beliefs and you know what's going on with that and who were Mary and who was Joseph and all this stuff." And I just basically I had to give the whole gospel to them. And I said, well, did he pray at the end? I mean, did he, you know, Jesus in his heart? But here's what I, you know, I walked away, and here's what I wondered from that moment. I wonder if in a hyper-religious culture like Israel that you get that doesn't understand Jesus, I wonder if in that moment as we were asked to give questions, if they saw something about us and our answers, that when we walked away, they would have said, wow, wow. Those guys must have been with Jesus. It's a good question, isn't it? What do your enemies say about you after they deal with you? And what do they say about your Jesus after they deal with you? Read
1: but since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together.
0: Okay, stop, 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 stop. There's a turning point in the argument. It says, after they saw, ready? But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Isn't that interesting? The thing that confounds them, the thing that knocks them off their game, the the thing that they've got no defense for. It's not theology, right? They don't say, oh, wow, you guys just totally beat us in theology. It was life change. They're standing there looking at a man that everybody knows has been healed. And they go, we can argue theology all day. I don't know how to argue against that. Here's why I think that's huge. I'm convinced you and I will never argue anybody into heaven. See, if you could, man, I'd be arguing all the time. And I'm a good arguer. I mean, I I like arguing. But I'm just going to tell you as good an arguer as I am, I don't think I have ever argued anybody into being a Christian. you know what the strongest apologetic for the Christian faith is? It's not theology. And you're hearing this from a theologian, a guy who loves theology. It's not theology. Guess what the strongest apologetic for the Christian faith is? Life change. Your changed life. And when you go to your friends and when you go to your neighbors and you're trying to explain this Jesus thing to them, it's, and don't get me wrong, we just said, hey, part of this whole thing is you've got to know your Bible, you've got to be able to give a defense for the faith and the hope that's in you. But I'm telling you, the thing they cannot deny, the thing that changes the whole conversation is not theology. It's life change. It's life change. That's the thing they go, Phew. It must be real because the life change is real. And the way that person is living and and what's going on in them, the only way that happens in them is if Jesus is real. Which means this, guys. One of the most powerful things, one of the most powerful tools in your tool belt is your testimony. Testimony. It's the story of what Jesus has done in you. And I believe that every single Christian should have their testimony sitting in their holster ready to give at the drop of a hat. And guys, it's not that hard. I'm just, your testimony is super, super easy. It's simply this. Who were you before you knew Jesus? What were you like? How did you behave? What did you do? What was it? that caused you to consider Jesus? It was a friend that came, you saw a sermon on TV. What was it that tipped your heart in the direction of Jesus? What's happened since? What has Jesus done to you and in you since you made the decision? And guys, I'm just telling you, that story is undefendable. It's unassailable by our critics. It's life change. What do we do? There's a healed man right in front of me. There must be something to the story. Keep reading.
1: What are we gonna do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop the sink from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge, for yourselves, whether it is right in God's sight to obey, to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard.
0: Okay. So they get to this moment and they go, look, I, I, what are we going to do? We can't find anything to say against them. We've got a healed man standing over here. These guys are able to give their scripture. They're treating us with grace and dignity. What are we going to do? And someone goes, well, let's just tell them to stop talking in Jesus' name. We'll intimidate them a little bit. And so they call Peter and John back in and they say, okay, look, 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 we're going to let you off easy this time, but you just can't speak in this Jesus' name again. To which Peter says, how do we do that? How do we decide to obey you rather than obeying God who told us to speak in Jesus' name? Basically, saying to him, You can say what you want, but we're going to leave here and tell everybody we know about Jesus, right? But let me ask you a question Was that okay for them to do? Because doesn't Scripture say, Obey those who are in authority over you? And yet, Peter's looking authority, looking the Sanhedrin right in the eyes and saying, Dude, not a chance. Microphone, microphone.
1: Maybe this one works. There we go. Okay. I believe that's absolutely true. You're supposed to obey people in authority over you unless it's a direct conflict of what God says to do. Okay. For example, when they say, deny Christ or I'm going to kill you. Okay,
0: so you're saying, okay, here I am. took me years of seminary to learn to draw like this, so here we go. You're saying, here I am. Here is somebody who's in authority over me, right? And I am supposed to obey them how often?
1: As long as they're not going against God.
0: As long as they're not going against God.
1: In, in making you go directly against God.
0: And making me what now?
1: Go directly against God.
0: Not, not, as long as they're not making me go directly against God. Okay, where do, we get, where do you get that? Why do you believe that? Grab your Bibles. Oh, we got one. We got one. What? 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 Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Right. So, but what if somebody saying that God is the highest chain of command? He, you know, whatever he, sorry, whatever he says goes. Okay, but if in this case they weren't saying, "Hey, you got to worship a false god," they were just saying, "Hey, you can't talk about him." Well, being that Christ was God and He's the one that told them to go out and. Spread the word about him. That's a direct commandment from God. Grab your Bibles. (laughs) Romans chapter 13. It's going to be to the right in your Bible if you don't know. Romans chapter 13. Acts, Romans. Okay, I'll read this one for you real quick. Here we go, Romans chapter 13. You ready? You got it? Okay, because you're going to want to see it because you're not going to like it. (laughs) Romans chapter 13, here is what it says. You ready? Everyone, what's the next word? Must, must, everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities for there is, next word, no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. You know what I saying? If you disobey somebody in authority over you, you're not only going to get the consequences they give, but God's going to spank you because God placed that authority in your life. For rulers do not hold terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is next word, God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of, the con- of your conscience. Now, now, watch this. Romans chapter 13, okay, and that's going to be a symbol for God, okay? So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, okay, so triangle. God, okay, God says, look... I am using the authority like he's a tool, like she's a tool. So think of think of the authority like a chisel. We'll put a hammer in God's hand. Okay, so here you go. I told you, seminary to draw that well. Okay. So he's saying, hey, you need to think of the authorities as being tools in the hand of God, that God has placed people in authority over you to bless your life. Now, get ready for your mind to get blown. He writes that instruction in the book of Romans. Because who's in charge at the time? The Romans. And if you know anything about Roman history, and you go back, these guys are leches. These guys are having orgies. These guys are sleeping with each other's mothers. These guys are doing horrible things. And God says, obey the authority, because God placed the Romans over you. And they are God's servants to do you good. That's pretty scary, because here's what that means. That crummy, crummy boss you've got at work, that real, real jerk that you have at the head of your department, God's tool. Remember your lousy parents? Remember your crummy, 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 lousy parents? Remember them? God's tool. Remember that horrible teacher, that horrible teacher you had? God's tool for you. Question? So based on that logic, that would mean that every government that forbids Christianity means that nobody in that country can be a Christian, therefore they're not... Going no, to say heaven. it again. So, for example, North Korea or China that forbids Christianity, is that saying that nobody in that country is allowed to be a Christian because if they do, they're, they're going against their authority? That is a great question. So there's. So did you hear it? Because that's a great question. What do you do if you're in a country that forbids Christianity? am I now obligated to obey that authority because God said, I gave you your authority and they are God's tool. Isn't that a great question? Because right now it looks like we're in a horrible place of conflict because on the one side, Romans 13 very clearly said, obey those who are in authority over you and now we just thought of a situation that's going to cause somebody not to go to heaven if they actually did that passage and lived it out. Okay, so we're going to set that aside for the second, okay? We're going to get to it in a moment. But let's, let's process this first part out. So I've got a crummy boss, and they're a jerk. They're an absolute, total jerk, but they're my boss. If I'm going to be like Christ, if I'm going to obey Scripture, how do I treat that boss? With love and respect. Matter of fact, I'm going to suggest you should work so well for that crummy, crummy, crummy boss that that crummy, crummy, crummy boss would see the way you treat them with love and respect and honor and they would say to themselves, whispering as they walk away from you, wow, that employee must have been with Jesus. Because guys guys. guys, Not only is that boss placed in your life for a reason, it's possible you were placed in their life for a reason. And they're going to figure out Jesus or they're not going to figure out Jesus based on your employment. Why would God maybe give you and me a lousy boss? Why would God do that? What do you think? Come on. Okay. Microphone where? Yep, no, Oh. Why would God give us a crummy boss? To humble us. To humble us. Possibly so. You're an arrogant boogerhead and you think you know everything right, and God says, okay, I'll just give you a crummy boss. We'll teach you some humility here. Over here? Yep.
1: To live by example.
0: To live by what? Example. It's okay, so to be an example maybe to the boss? Why else would God give you a crummy boss?
1: To make you come to him.
0: Okay, so maybe to be a testimony to the boss so the boss would come to him. Why else? To teach you obedience. And here's the deal. I think you're right about all your answers. I think every one of them is dead on. Because here's what you need to know at the end of the day. If you haven't figured out yet, while you and I are here on earth, God doesn't care a whole bunch about fair. Have you noticed that? Moms care about fair. God doesn't care about fair. Because I don't know about you. I've got friends. they got more money than I do. That's not fair. I got friends who got promoted before I got promoted. That's not fair. You, you realize you realize that if you spend your life looking for fair, you'll miss God. Because God says, I set it fair when all this is over, when all this is done. But right now, fair is not a big deal. What's a big deal? What's the thing that God is most concerned about in every one of our lives? Our heart. Our heart. In what regard? Turning towards him being Turning toward him. Okay, I, I'm going there so far. Okay, so here's what I'm going to say. You've, if you don't leave, if you leave here tonight and you don't get any other truth out of tonight, take this one. Because it, it'll change everything you understand about God. The number one priority that God has for you is not fair. It is not success. and you ready for this? It's not even happiness. If you spend your life searching for happiness, you will fight with God all your life. Because it's not a priority to God. The number one thing that God is concerned for you, that you look like his son, that you look like Jesus. Remember that famous verse in Romans chapter 8? We quote it to everybody when they're in the hospital and when something bad happens in their life, we say, oh, no, 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 God works all things for the good, for them that love, right? Did you read the next verse? That they would be conformed to the image of his son. He says God takes every crummy, poopy, stupid, bad, horrible thing that happens in your life, and he uses it, not for fair and not to make you happy, and not to make you successful. He uses it so that when you get to the other side of that crummy thing, you will look more like Jesus because of it. That is God's greatest concern, and if it isn't your greatest concern, if the number one thing that motivates your life isn't being more like Jesus, you will fight God for your entire life. Because that's his plan for you. That you would look like his son. Which means, he gives you the crummy boss, to teach you obedience. Maybe, maybe that you know. I call the other answers too. Why would obedience be a big deal to God? In Psalm fifty-one, David talks about talks to God, and he says that. What you require of me is not sacrifice. It is a broken and contrite heart. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I think that would in some ways come in with obedience, right? Why is obedience a big deal to God? It's Romans 13. You've got to obey. Why is obedience a big deal to God? If you, love me, you'll obey. if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Why else is obedience a big deal to God? Right, that's what Jesus said. Why would you call me Lord, Lord, and say that you revere me and then don't do what I tell you to do? That's exactly why. Yeah. And here's what you need to know, okay? Somewhere, sometime, God's going to ask you to do something really hard. You're going to be in a marriage that really, really stinks, and he's going to say, hey, it's not time for divorce yet. You're going to be living in a moment where a lie would get you out of trouble, and he's going to say, tell the truth. You're going to have a circumstance where letting them know that you're a Christian means you won't get the promotion, and he's going to say, let them know. There's going to be some piece of Scripture, there's going to be something that you're going to look at and say, if I were God, I would have never put that in the Bible And what you do next will decide what you believe about God and how deeply you love him. It's easy to follow God when you agree. Show me what you do when you don't like what he's saying. And why would God give you a crummy boss and then say, hey, obey that boss? Because God says there's going to be a moment in your life and you're going to be desperate and it's going to be dark and if you make the wrong decision in that moment of your life, it could change the trajectory of your life and in that moment you've got to understand being under biblical authority and what it means to obey when it's lousy to obey and you need to do what I've asked you to do in Scripture so I can lead you out of this trouble. And if you don't understand obedience you'll make a mess. The greatest concern of the heart of God is that you and I look like his son. Okay, all that said, Romans 13, obey authority. And now we've got Peter coming to a moment when he says, nah, nah, not going to do what you said. And we said the answer is, you can obey somebody until they ask you to do something completely against God. We said if we obeyed everything that authority said over us, then people in China would never know Jesus, right? Because they say don't preach the gospel in China. So when is the moment that I can say no to this? When God says no to it. Or God says yes and the authority's telling me no. How do we know that's true? Can anyone give me any biblical reference, any biblical story that lets you know it's okay when the authority says something in direct contradiction to God, you can finally say to the authority, I'm sorry. You can say what Peter said. You decide, am I going to obey you or am I going to obey God in this?
1: Jesus didn't stone um, the woman caught in adultery, even though by the Jewish law she could be.
0: Yeah, I don't know that in that situation Jesus was disobeying the law as much as he was showing grace and mercy, you know, and letting her off the hook. I think that was still okay to do. So I don't know that that was a disobedience moment, but it's a great thought. You're thinking good. Where else? What else would you use?
1: When when Daniel was in Babylon and they told him to pray towards the king?
0: Grab your Bibles. She just got it. Daniel chapter 6. If you don't know where that is, go to the middle of your Bible, then work to the right. You're going to find this book of Daniel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 6. Okay, so let me, let me give you the background on this story. Remember the first time when Daniel gets, and he's taken into captivity. Where are we at on time right now? we got plenty of time. i got hours. Okay, we're going. All right. So Daniel gets taken into captivity. Remember the first time that his obedience gets challenged. They've asked him to eat food that comes from the king's table. The problem for Daniel is it's not kosher. He's going to violate God's ordinances about what he's supposed to eat. And so he goes to his jailer. He goes to the guys in charge of him and says, look, look, would you be willing to do a test? Could could I offer an alternative plan to this? Would you be willing to let me and my Hebrew brothers instead eat just vegetables? And then, after a period of time, you can examine us and see, are the people who ate from the king's table healthier, or are we that are just eating vegetables healthier? And if you know the story, you know what happens. They come back, they examine them. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his friends, are all healthier than everybody who's been eating all the meat from the king's table. Now, here's the deal, guys. We all know that being a vegetarian's not going to make you healthier than guys who eat meat, okay? I'm just saying (laughs) And for all all of you vegetarians out there, it's okay. I forgive you for being vegetarians, but God gave us canine teeth, okay? So, all right. All right. So, the reason that they're healthier is because God honored their obedience. And here's the really cool part, and guys, we forget this so often. Sometimes whenever we're dealing with an unfair authority or a boss who's being a jerk, rather than trying to understand what the boss is trying to do and saying, hey, whoa, 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 I'm totally on board, I totally want to do this, I want to be healthy too, I want to make more sales too, would you let us try a trial? What if every other salesman lies, what if I tell the truth? And let's just see after 50 days who sells more. No, 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 no. let's just do a trial. What, 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 if, what if everybody else behaves that way, and what if, what if you'll let me behave in a way that honors God, and let's just see after a period of time which one comes out Right. And Daniel is absolutely genius in this moment. And you understand in that moment he's trying to honor his authority and he offers an option. In Daniel chapter 6, he doesn't get that opportunity. In Daniel chapter 6, the king, who's Darius, says, here is a law decreed by the decree of the Medes and the Persians. It cannot be changed. It cannot be amended. Nothing, nothing. And here's what it is. You, for the next 30 days, have to pray to me as if I was God. And Daniel hears the decree and says, I can't, I can't. He, he comes to the same moment that Peter comes in this passage and says, I can't obey you and obey God at the same time. And because you've done it in the law of the Medes and the Persians, and you're going to be completely inflexible about this, there's no way for me to even offer you an option. And what does Daniel do? Here it is, Daniel... Daniel chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Here's what it says. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows were open toward Jerusalem, and three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God just as he had done before. You get what he did. He He goes to his apartment. He opens the windows, sits there on his balcony, and does what he had always done. He honors God in that moment. Some of us, some of us would have said, okay, let's just like close the shutters and we'll pray, you know, then maybe they won't notice. But Daniel goes right out on his balcony and prays publicly. They arrest him. They drag him before King Darius. King Darius says, hey, Daniel, what did you do? And Daniel says, I had to decide. I had to decide between my God and you, and I chose my God. And he says, okay, I'm going to throw you in the lion's den. How many of you believe that Daniel went to the lion's den kicking and screaming? How many believe that when the guards grabbed Daniel, he started cussing out King Darius? See, I've got a feeling that he said, okay. If that's the choice, if that's your decision. So think about this. You're going to punish me for doing the right thing. And even in that moment, he shows honor and respect to a pagan king who is being absolutely unfair in his life. But in that moment that he has to choose between God and the king, his answer is going to always be God. And they throw him in the lion's den. And what happens? God closes the mouth of the lions. Here's the interesting thing. When King Darius comes the next morning, he calls down into the lion's den and says, Daniel, Daniel, please tell me you're alive. I've been worried about you all night long. And when Daniel calls back up out of the lions, then it says, don't fear, king. My God has closed the lions' mouths. King Darius puts a decree out. Ready for this? In all of Persia, that everyone must worship the God of Daniel. Because in a moment in which he stood in absolute disagreement and had to look at someone in authority over him and say, I can't because you're asking me to do something that God said not to do. He still behaved with respect. He didn't scream obscenities. He didn't tell Darius what a jerk he was. He submitted to the unfairness, and Darius knew he was being unfair. And suddenly Darius was rooting for Daniel's God. How cool is that? And then when God comes through, he decrees to all of Persia, you're going to pray to the God of Daniel. How cool would that be in your life if your unsaved boss saw you behave to his or her unfairness with such honor and glory that you say, man, that guy must have known Jesus. That girl must have known Jesus. And what if it so touched their heart that they would say from now on, this is going to be a Christian business? You don't get there kicking and screaming and asking for fair. You get there by honoring the authority God has placed in your life. But Daniel teaches us another critical lesson, and that was simply this, that it was okay when you were forced to make the decision between what the boss said and what God said, you always choose God. How do we know that's true? Because God closed the mouths of the lions in honor to Daniel's obedience to him. So what do you do in China when China says you cannot be a Christian? You stand in front of them and say, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you want to kill me for following Jesus, then you kill me for following Jesus. When the Romans threw the Christians to the lions in the arena, history tells us that hundreds of Romans converted to Christ because they saw the way the Christians died. Why would God give you an unfair boss? To teach you to be like Jesus. To teach people who don't know Jesus what Jesus is like. So, let me toss another nugget for you. Where are we at on time? Five minutes, okay, five minutes. So we can close with this and then someone else has to pick up next week. All right. I think one of the biggest mistakes that we do, guys, in our current generation is we teach our children to be suspicious about authority. I think when the police officer pulls us over to give us a ticket, I think our children are watching. And even if that police officer is a jerk, how should a Christian treat a police officer who's being a jerk? When your kid comes home from school and says, my teacher's being unfair, do you go to the principal? Or do you say to your kid, it's not about fair. It's about honoring the authority in your life. And which is the better lesson for your kid? that your kid get out of that homework assignment or your kid doesn't have to sit at the back of the class or, or that your child learn to submit to authority even when they don't like it. Because here's what I promise you, someday your child's going to be 24, off in college somewhere, making a whole bunch of decisions, and you're not going to be there and they're going to have to decide, do I obey this or do I obey my heart? And you want them to obey this because it's their authority. In life it's a better lesson than fair it's not about everything being okay it's about doing what I'm supposed to do because God teaches me lessons through authority in my life let's pray God, we're just going to say out loud this this is not an easy one for us because I guarantee you every one of us, Lord had somebody who came to mind an unreasonable teacher a horrible parent a boss who's just an absolute jerk and and in our spirit we wanted more than anything else to tell them off, to point out how horrible they were and fix them We never considered that maybe you brought that unfair authority into our life to teach us to be more like Jesus. To maybe behave in such an amazing way that they would discover Jesus. To learn how to be obedient even when we didn't like the commands. And so God, we just come to this moment tonight reconsidering and rethinking how we're supposed to behave and how we're supposed to be respond to the authorities that you've placed in our life. God, help us to do this thing really, really well. That when we're done, family and friends and people around would say, wow, they must have been with Jesus.